0: hello and welcome to the world in 30 minutes the podcast on the events policies and ideas that will shape the world from the european council on foreign relations my name is mark leonard i'm director of ecfr and this week we're recording the podcast up in the mountains from the world economic forum in davos and i am thrilled to be joined by a very special guest alex Stubb, not simply the former prime minister finance minister Foreign Minister, Trade and Europe Minister of Finland. But even more important than that is a board member of ECFR and former vice president of the European Investment Bank. And for the last period of time has been the head of the Transnational Policy Inst- No, what's it called? School
1: again? of Transnational School Governance. School of Transnational the European Governance. University Institute in Florence.
0: And like me, he's been up in the mountains in Switzerland for the last few days, talking to the global elite about the, the state of the world uh, 11 months after the start of the war in Ukraine. So, Alex, well, let's try and make sense of, of of some of the big things that we've been listening to. What, what are the big stories that you've been picking up in Davos?
1: Well, first of all, it's my, I think, eighth or ninth time here, and I've been here in many different positions, and now I'm here. As an expert, and I guess to a certain extent an academic, which gives you a little bit more of a helicopter, a bird's eye view, you can look at things from different perspectives. I would still say that the number one theme is the war in Ukraine and Russian aggression. And then everything trickles down from there. So a lot of discussions on energy prices, a lot of risk discussion on possible global recessions, a lot of discussions. Discussions on the new world order, what it means, uh, European unity, American presence, etc. But I've enjoyed it thoroughly, as I as I actually always do. I keep on coming back because I get sort of. You know, I, I, I get the pulse of the world uh, here in, for the year here in, in, in Davos. It's always useful. So we were both here in May this year because it was, it was
0: delayed because of COVID. At that time, Ukraine was was everywhere. Every single session you went to, a Ukrainian MP would pop up and call for more weapons, bigger sanctions against Russia. It's a pretty miserable and kind of humble mood. Slightly different atmosphere this year, I think. Um, Ukraine's still very much there, but it's, it feels a bit less raw. People are looking at the world opening up again, there's a bit more of an optimistic mood.
1: Yeah, I I, I agree with that analysis. And I, But I think it was very important for the Ukrainians to be here in May. Uh, as such a, I met a few delegations, MPs as well. My message at the time was that, please guys, be careful, there's going to be war fatigue. And I was fortunately wrong. Because Putin keeps on you know, killing innocent civilians, targeting hospitals and apartment blocks. And that keeps all of us not only awake, but astute to the atrocities. And in that sense, it's not necessary for every session to be just about Ukraine, but a lot of it about its ramifications as well. But Ukraine is still, I think, you know, hovering around here as the big theme. And the the other big theme, which I
0: picked up in lots of places is about sort of deglobalization and how we're kind of moving into uh, a different kind of world. Olaf Scholz, uh, who's just spoken today, is the one G7 leader who's who's taking part in the World Economic Forum, said that we won't live in a in a bipolar world in, in 2045. But there is a, a real sense amongst many of the companies that whether it's because of, of Ukraine and the sanctions, whether it's because of COVID, whether it's because of, of a kind of fragmentation due to technology controls being brought in, the fears of supply chains, nearshoring, localization, all those sorts of things, the old kind of certainties of Davos seem to be disappearing as the world becomes
1: more fragmented and and polarised. Yeah, I guess you could say that, you know, the DNA of Davos or what used to be called the Davos man is a little bit, now the Davos woman also, is a little bit on the defensive because must remember that when the organisation was founded some 50-ish years ago, it was a place where... You know politicians, businessmen, and also NGOs, civil service journalists, and academics and think tanks came together to discuss the big mega trends. It was founded at a time when the world was bipolar, so it was very much a systemic rivalry between the Soviet Union and the United States and their allies. Then, when we went to a multipolar world, right when the Cold War ended, everyone felt that, yeah, you know Davos won. Fukuyama spoke of the end of history and let's move to liberal democracy and social market economy and and globalization. But ever since, you know, there's always been one crisis after another. And we have to understand that, that when we come to Davos, the world has always changed. There was 9-11 or there was failure of European constitutions in referenda in the Netherlands and, and France. There was... Lehman Brothers, there was the war in Georgia, there was a financial crisis, there was a euro crisis, there was the asylum crisis, there was the emergence of China, then eventually we came to COVID, then we came to the war in Ukraine, and then now to the energy crisis. So this is how the world evolves. And and I think it's more important than ever, I guess the theme here for this year is, is, is cooperation in a fragmented world. Uh, and I think it's very important that we keep that in mind, that the world always has three tenets, competition, conflict and cooperation. Competition is good, as long as it doesn't lead to uh, conflict. And of course, cooperation is the basis for competition. That's what we're looking at. Final point, I think Schultz is right that we're not going to live in a bipolar world in 2045. We already live in a multipolar world and that's what makes it so messy, so unorganized and so complicated to understand. So you mentioned the
0: energy crisis. That's been one of the the most discussed things in different issues, both um, with a degree of relief. We heard from Ursula von der Leyen, the, the president of the... European Commission about how uh, brilliantly Europe had weaned itself off um, Russian gas and how it had confounded a lot of its critics who thought that the lights would be going off in Europe this winter. Obviously, helped a bit by by the the nice weather that we've had. But there've been lots of different sessions that I've been to with people, both you know, from leaders of different countries, energy ministers from suppliers, from consumers of energy, as well as. The sort of global energy experts from the, from from the international energy Agency and other players what what are the main, your main takeaways on these kind of combined issues of energy and the transition to a post carbon economy
1: yeah net zero as they want to call it <laughs> or as I like to call it because I'm turning it this year fit for fifty five <laughs> right no I mean um, I think we should look at it from many different perspectives first observations is to say that transition is always complicated and transition in a crisis is usually more complicated, but it does happen faster. So the good news is that we're weighing ourselves off of uh, Russian energy, which uh, of course is fossil fuel-based because it's all about really gas and uh, and oil. And the good news is also that we've been able to do the transition so far quite well. Now, the bad news, of course, is that the transition is also going to be dirty because it means that we're going to have to mo- burn more coal because a lot of countries made historic mistakes about not uh, developing nuclear power, unlike Finland and, and France, if I may, <laughs> may add. Um, so, so transition is always complicated and there's not going to be any you know magic potions or, or quick solutions. You don't do transitions in one, two or three years. It takes longer. Usually you need three things. Number one, you need legislation. Number two, you need finance. And then number three, you need innovation. So if you sort of mix and match those three and get them right, then I think we can take care of the transition. But something big is happening. But again, it happened because of a crisis, not because we wanted to do the structural change immediately. So Olaf Scholz was comparing this to the changes
0: in the 19th century with the Industrial Revolution. Ursula von der Leyen was talking about a kind of new, a Green New Deal industrial Fund and there's lots of talk in all the sessions I've been to about the the IRA, the Inflation Reduction mm. Act in the US. This enormous subsidy worth hundreds of billions of mm. of dollars, which uh, is going to turbocharge America's transition mm. to to uh, a kind of post-carbon economy, but also um, signals a new era of closing markets to to foreigners. Um, and uh, a different era of industrial policy where everyone is kind of putting huge subsidies into their own industrial systems. That was something which has been quite divisive in Europe because the DNA of the EU project has been about open markets. And this is a kind of new era where we're having to think in quite different terms about about state subsidies and about how we deal with, with these sorts of competitions. What did you take from the discussions that you've been to here?
1: Yeah. So let me try to dissect this by looking at the big picture and the small pictures. The big picture is that the success, the economic success of the European Union has always been based on three pillars. Number one is the internal market, which is about free movement of goods, services, people, and money. Number two is trade, so free trade around the world. And then number three is competition policy, or what the Americans would call antitrust. And these these, these three things have been the foundation of what I would call the liberal economic agenda of the European Union and therefore also the basis for every welfare state in the European Union. Without those three things, we would not have prosperous welfare states in Europe. And that's why I think it's very important that all Europeans keep that in mind. Now, I'll be very frank with you, I am not a huge fan uh, of the flexibility in the state aid rules that we are seeing right now coming from the European Commission. So and that was one of the pillars,
0: because the two things you announced were both being more flexible about, and secondly, to come up with our own version of the of the IRA. So it's, it's not wrong. our, well,
1: yes, we're actually subsidizing. 50% of it goes to Germany, 30% goes to France, and the rest of it goes to the other 25 member states. So... I think it's an anti-competitive move and I don't like it. Had I sat in the commission, I would have been, you know, defending, um, uh, Verhagen, uh, uh, the com- competition commissioner, Vestager on, 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 on this. Now, but here we, here we come to my second point, which is the smaller one. And that is that let's keep the figures in mind. What's happening here? Now, the EU provided an RRF, which was the recovery and resilience facility, uh, after COVID the total bill of that was 790 billion euros right the ira which you refer to as multi hundred million it is actually 270 billion so it's it's three times smaller than what the eu has already done my answer here is that don't start doing tit for tat subsidies green transition is good but interesting enough, you also get businesses saying, oh, this is great. Well, why? Well, because they're getting kind of free money. So it's a very difficult balance. But the final point I want to make is that the international liberal economic order was created by the U.S. and to a certain extent Europe post-World War II. And it has served all of us well. It has eradicated hundreds of millions of people uh, from poverty. Uh, hasn't, it, hasn't eradicated the people, it's eradicated the poverty. Yeah, has, yeah <laughs> People from poverty, yes. Yes, exactly. Which is kind of good. But but it's so it's we have to be very careful. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Europe should not become protectionist. Protectionism is, I think, the cancer of uh, the economy.
0: It's interesting, but that uh, that you say that, but you also can't have free trade in one market if all the other markets are close to yourself. So one of the ways that That um, you can open up other markets, I suppose, which European trade commissioners have been very good at doing is to threaten tariffs and subsidies on others. But also the whole climate transition does mean that we're going to be bringing uh, taking measures which will which will have quite a big impact, whether it's uh, carbon border tax is a good example
1: of that. And I think you're right. Remember that European Union is a regulatory superpower, which means that when it regulates, others have to adapt. That's fine. But I don't like the idea of then us tashing cash on our... I don't like industrial policy. For me, it's not a part of social market economy or or of capitalism. So, of course, I do, you know, I belong to the sort of liberal side of the economic sphere of this. And I understand that there are other views as well, and I respect them. I just disagree. The big challenge, I suppose, is that in
0: China, you have dual circulation policy, where you have this huge closed market and massive subsidies to kickstart the economy. And now the US is sort of mirroring it. And question is, what, what does it mean for Europeans? You mentioned innovation as one of the, the kind of pillars. This is Davos. So lots of talk about innovation, lots of tech companies. Have you been following some of the debates either about kind of new, you know, high, the hydrogen economy and things like that, or AI, quantum, those sorts of uh, topics, which are very
1: Davos- Well, yes, I have. And I actually participated in one sort of closed shop debate about uh, gov tech, so government and technology. But my big take on this is is very simple. Uh, I do think that artificial intelligence and robotization is going to change the economy and the way in which we work. It's going to change politics and the way in which we communicate. And at the end of the day, it is changing science and actually the way in which we are as human beings. So it's very important to have this conversation because... You know, technology is one of the biggest drivers of every society. And for that, we do need a rules-based system. Because when we start talking about CRISPR technology and DNA manipulation, you know, we, we're we getting into the point Yuval Harari says that we're becoming like gods, you know, we're able to change what a human being, you know, looks like, or, or, or probably the level of uh, his or her intelligence and sex and so on and so forth. So we have to be very careful and come up with, with similar types of rules, because there's only one humanity, there's only one mankind. And and that kind of stuff is very important on the text. I also had the pleasure just extempore of meeting uh, Alexander Wang, who is uh, founder of AI Scale or Scale AI. So it, you know you meet a lot of interesting people who know a lot more about a particular field than you do. For me, I've always made it a mission of my mind to to have politicians understand what is happening in the world of technology or the world of science. And I think that's what a lot of people do here in the WeF. It's it's good. One of the most
0: interesting sessions I went to was looking at how technology is changing the nature of war. In fact, Mm -hmm. you had a Ukrainian minister talking about how drones and different apps are helping them have completely different situational awareness and how that's been one of the things that has been helping the the Ukrainians have their edge against the Russians. But there was also an American senator there who was name checking all the American tech companies who've been involved in the war effort, including Microsoft and Palantir and and um, uh, um uh, you know uh, elon musk and other players like that um why do you, one of the, the kind of interesting things is that, I mean, Olaf Scholz has, has just been speaking, but there aren't a huge number of G7 leaders here at the moment. Why do you, why do you put well, that yeah, down to as too? a former
1: Finnish prime minister, <laughs> I said, why do you focus on G7? <laughs> it's true, your prime minister yeah, was here. So My uh, prime minister was here. Finland is well represented. And actually, my foreign minister <laughs> is, at, you won't see, but my foreign minister, sorry, foreign minister is standing right here behind me. Uh, and of course, of course, if, if you start talking about Gs, if you put the North Nordic countries together, we would be G9. So <laughs> now I, you know, it, it, sometimes it's about timing. So, you know, take someone like the president of France. I, he has his handful right now with with pension reform. Take the president of the United States. Uh, you know, He's in the middle of uh, conversations about many different things. So I think usually what happens is that, you know, you do have a sort of a superstar focus here. And one of the focuses is then, of course, on something like you know, the Chancellor of Germany coming here or the President of the European Commission. You have to also remember that the Secretary General of the UN is here, the head of the IMF is here, the head of the ECB is here, the head of the World Bank is here, EIB, etc. So, you know, all the big shots are here. Uh, but I do think a lot of the focus here this time around is on India. I, I have this, you see India everywhere Which I think is great and very important. So, this is a country that's going to demographically pass uh, China this year and become the most populated country in the world. And
0: a lot of people also looking at how India is navigating this bipolar
1: competition between China and America. Yeah. Okay. So, here we get a little bit into, well, uh, promise not to tell anyone kind of territory. (laughs) So you'll know because you've been kind enough to comment. I'm working on a book, you know, Power in the Age of Disorder. And um, one of my big theses, which I have actually come up with really through discussions with my Indian friends here is that if, uh, you know, we have a world with different types of power centers, I wouldn't call it bipolar, but different power centers. And one of the extreme power centers is China. The other one is the United States. Well, then there's the European Union. The European Union in this game with these three power centers is going to play mostly with the United States. 75, 80, 90 percent. We don't know how much, but the values are there. We've seen in Ukraine. Uh, what is India going to do? Well, you know, China is happy to have a multipolar world as long as it's a unipolar uh, <laughs> Asia. Well, India doesn't like that. So and India is a democ- uh, democ- uh, democracy and it's going to compete with China. And if I may, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but I don't think India has a specially warm place for the United States. So what happens then? I think there's going to be a rather interesting alliance, perhaps, perhaps, between India and the European Union in this sort of power game between the the, the four different power centers. Uh, So uh, I think all eyes on India at the moment. This is what I would say in 2023.
0: The other country that, that you mentioned that was pretty absent when we were last in Davos in May, uh, but which is back now, is China. You heard the Vice Premier mm. uh, gave a speech trying to reassure people that China is still committed to the market economy, that it's opening up again. What do you make
1: of the, the Chinese voice in Davos this year? It probably shows you you know, how the pendulum swings from one extreme to the other. Coming back to 2017, when President Xi Jinping was here uh, after the election of Donald Trump, uh, and Xi Jinping was basically saying that you know China is all about multilateralism and cooperation and fight against climate change and free trade and and, and the rest of it, and then boom, COVID hits. China basically closed the shop, and you know, goes to extreme regulatory measures and, of course, quite far-reaching authoritarian measures also in controlling uh, their population and basically closing up. And, you know, I think it's safe to say by this stage that zero COVID policy was a complete failure uh, on China's part. And now they're trying to rectify that failure. And that is, of course, happening in the aftermath of their party congress, which took place in the fall of 2022. And the opening of (laughs) And the the abolition of zero COVID, the death toll of which we're not going to know ever, but it's going to be in the hundreds of thousands, if not uh, in the millions. So what they now try to do is rectify and say, listen, you know, COVID, yes, we had to close up, but now we want to open up. You know, I believe it when I see it.
0: So we're... Uh, about halfway through the World Economic Forum, we've mentioned some of the big themes that have been going on. President Zelensky is about to speak. We heard his, his, the first lady uh, speaking earlier on in, in the conference. What are the other things that people should look to coming out of Davos this year?
1: Uh, I think, as I said, it's always the pulse of the world, you know, for the, for the coming months. I would put all eyes still on Ukraine and what is happening there and how sustainable the, the, the conflict is. I think the mood here is more optimistic than I expected. It's quite often that the people who are not here say that it's a waste of time to be at the World Economic Forum, nothing happens. And the people who are here say, well, this was the greatest thing ever. But coming in here, it was all talk about, you know, world recession. But there's very little talk about that right now. Uh, You know, coming in here, uh, there was talk about, well, China's zero COVID policy and and China being uh, sort of isolated. Well, they're not that isolated now. Coming in here, there's a lot of talk about the U.S. and the IRA, uh, that you know it's going to become tit-for-tat protectionism between the EU and the U.S. Well, perhaps a little bit less of that now. So I would actually argue, but you know me, I'm an eternal optimist, that the mood here in Davos is not that bad, all things considered. Okay, well,
0: that's, I think, all we've got time for for the main discussion. We've got one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. What's on your bookshelf at the moment, Alex? Okay,
1: uh, well, I do have... I have a book that I got from my mother-in-law and father-in-law, which is about the sort of power of persons or personalities going through, I think, 12 uh, European uh, and world leaders who have shaped history, you know, from from Hitler to to de Gaulle to to, to Margaret Thatcher. So that's on my uh, bookshelf. Who's right it on. by? Oof, now you're asking me a very difficult question <laughs> because my bookshelf is in Florence. <laughs> uh, it is a British historian, as far as I recall. Okay, we'll track it down and
0: make sure that it's in the notes of the podcast and a book i was looking at just before i came here is also linked to the world economic forum this year which is henry kissinger who at the age of 99 was beamed into the into the conference to give his his historical lessons on on conflict but he wrote a, a book at the age of 99 on on leadership where he looks at a lot of different leaders so it's a very compatible topic to yours so that's all we've got time for from uh, the world economic forum this year we hope that you've enjoyed listening to us if you have please do subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you've used to download it on. While you're there, if you want to give us a five-star rating and a good review, we'd be really happy because it will help other people come to the podcast. But for now, from Alex Stubb and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of VCFR's podcast is Alan Sundar and our editor is Marlene Riedel.